the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Yes, and a good afternoon to you. Welcome. Good to have you on board for this Tuesday edition of Lifeline. As we start out tonight, I guess you would have thought following the uh, three-day holiday, for those that were off enjoying a little R&R over the president's um, presidential uh, holiday on Monday, uh, might have thought that it would be kind of a, a slow week. Yeah, well, uh, certainly the Bay Area weather is uh, impacting a lot of that. They say the timing is everything, and if that be the case, PG&E put out a um, news wire bulletin here at 3.07, just a little about, uh, just about two hours ago, uh, letting us know that they're going to be mobilizing for the incoming weather storms and uh, concerns that snow could be as low as the 500-foot elevation, gusty winds, be careful, etc., etc., and uh, they were on the scene. Well, that was at 3.07. By 3.15, a tree fell, and if you are making your way across the Oakland Bay Bridge westbound 80, just east of Treasure Island, a tree is blocking the right and center lanes. So if you're in it, take your time because you'll have no choice. And if you can avoid it, I would encourage you to do that. No estimated time of when the lanes will be back open again. But it's just part of the, the growing trend here we're seeing with reported outages throughout the San Francisco Bay Area. So PG&E certainly going to have their hands full. Some of these gusty winds up to 65 miles an hour. Reminiscent of the storms we had last December. Certainly don't anticipate nearly as much rain. But um, nevertheless, it's going to make a bit of a bit of a mess of this afternoon's commute. So as always, we encourage you to proceed with caution. Coming up later on in tonight's program, Jonathan Keller, president of the California Family Council, is going to join us. We're going to talk about a new bill making its way through the legislature. You need to be aware of Assembly Bill 223. What's it all about, Alfie? <laughs> we'll tell you that coming up a little bit later on. Meanwhile... Speaking of the California state legislature, though the problem isn't exclusive to California, even at the federal level, it seems as if in spite of the current housing crisis that have so many concern, not only in terms of housing availability, but also affordability, you would think, gentle listener, that our government will do everything that it can to remove as many obstacles as possible. Now, am I suggesting that we eliminate the necessity to have blueprints approved by the Planning Commission or permits in place? No, absolutely not. But what I am suggesting is if the state fully recognizes that there is a housing crisis and we need to be doing everything that we can to try and facilitate providing additional housing where it's needed, 
you think they'd have the brains enough to just get out of the way. But no, 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 I'm afraid just the opposite is true. In fact, as we're about to learn, um, there are more and more obstacles being put in the way. And oftentimes the law being used as a bit of a uh, manipulation device, particularly when special interest groups are either trying to prevent something from going in or going up, or others that are okay with it going in or going up. They just want to make sure that they've got a big slice of the pie. With more insights, we're joined now by syndicated talk show host, best-selling author, CPA and attorney, Bob Zadek. Bob, of course, hosts the Bob Zadek Show, heard locally here in the San Francisco Bay Area, Sunday mornings at 8 o'clock in the morning on our sister station, 860 AM, The Answer. Bob, as always, great to have you with us today. I was, I, I suppose, a bit stunned and yet not altogether really that surprised to learn that um, recently UC Berkeley that has been dealing with increasing enrollments and a huge demand for additional near campus or on campus housing has um, has fallen to the whim and will of those that wish to wield the California Environmental Quality Act as a weapon. And essentially, uh, some groups, including the folks that uh, subscribe to a so-called NIMBYism, you know, not in my backyard, uh, were able to freeze construction of additional housing near and on campus by claiming that no environmental impact study had been created, which um, has to be much to the frustration and consternation of students that are having to go farther and farther off campus to try and find housing. In fact, I understand at UC Berkeley alone, there's a 16,000 person wait list for on-campus housing. Now, instead of government doing everything that it can to take the barriers out of the way in order to get housing constructed in the areas where it's most desperately needed. Just the opposite seems to be taking place. Tell us what's going on here. Well, Craig, I'm going to start off by being an ingracious guest, and I'm going to question only for the purpose of inviting you into an interesting discussion before we roll up our sleeves and deal with housing. You you introduced today's topic by saying housing crisis. And then you also mentioned a little bit later on, there was a housing shortage. Now, I, I say, and by the way, I'm in a profound minority, but often, the minority is correct, but we'll see. I'm being a little arrogant. Uh, <laughs> housing crisis, Craig. I say California does not have any housing crisis, and housing costs exactly what it's worth. Now, how's that? to start today's discussion. Well, you're, 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 you're being a bit contrarian here, but that's what we love about you. Okay, explain what you mean. When, when we have, for example, a wait list of 16,000 students that say, I want on-campus housing and I can't find it, at least for them, they would, I imagine, define that as a bit of a crisis. It's not, well, it's only a crisis if you define crisis or shortage, it's the same concept. Sure. If you define a housing shortage or a housing crisis as meaning 
that we don't have enough housing for all the people who want to live here. Now, how absurd is that? Do you know how many people want to live in California? Let's say 50 million, maybe 100 million people. The weather's nice, it's near the beach. A lot of people want to live here. The problem is not the shortage of housing. Anybody, anybody who wants to live in California can if they're willing to pay exactly what it is worth. What is it worth? It's worth when you can persuade somebody with a house to sell it to you. In other words, housing is expensive because it's worth it. Just like diamonds are expensive because there's more of a demand for diamonds than can be supplied at a cheap price. And if you, as you increase the cost of housing, the demand for that house goes down. In other words, you and I learned in about the 10th grade, uh, when we learned about the supply and demand, that in a market, the, the demand will increase the cost, which means cost goes up and then demand goes down because fewer people are willing or able to pay the higher price. In other words, there's, just like there's no shortage of stock in Berkshire Hathaway, even though it sells for, let's say, $20,000 a share, there's no shortage of stock. Anybody who wants to buy a share of stock, it's there. Just pay what it's worth. So let's start with the premise. There is no, there's a shortage of cheap housing, but that's not a headline. There's a shortage of cheap everything. There's a shortage of cheap Lamborghinis. There's a shortage <laughs> of cheap uh, foie gras. There's a shortage of everything, but it's not a shortage. There's plenty, just pay what it's worth. So what do you, when you say housing crisis, there are 16,000 students who, want to, who can't find housing in Berkeley. You know what? Don't go to Berkeley. If you can't, and by the way, of those 16,000, all 16,000 could find housing. Just outbid what somebody is paying to live there. Pay $100 a month more, you know what? You'll get the apartment. No problem. So there is no shortage of housing in Berkeley. There's, there, there's a, a healthy demand, but lower the price, and the demand goes up. Increase the price, the demand goes down. So we start, and I, I'm introducing that not to capture or hijack the conversation, but to help the audience understand that in the subject of housing, we are not talking about quantity. We're only talking about price. Well, and, and, and let, me, up, let me interrupt by saying I, I appreciate, Bob, you, you helping to sort of fill in the blanks, so to speak, because I, I have often wondered, and a lot of it comes down to semantics, as you pointed out. I've, I've often wondered, as we've heard and read these stories in the newspaper on seemingly a daily basis about the housing crisis, the housing shortage, et cetera, et cetera, and I'm thinking... 
you know, we, we haven't seen an explosion necessarily of the population. It's not like we went from 350 million on Tuesday to 390 million on Wednesday. They all showed up and uh, suddenly you've got, uh, you know, uh, 40 million people that are looking for housing today that weren't yesterday. So clearly then this comes down to a matter of supply and demand in the desirable areas. And if there are more people that want to move to a section of California or to attend UC Berkeley, then there is a number of housing units capable of accommodating that number. Then clearly, while for that person seeking the housing may consider it to be a crisis because they can't find it at a price they feel comfortable with, this isn't at all to suggest that suddenly across the United States there's this massive explosion of population and suddenly we have 10 people for every five houses that are available to us. And, and Craig, um, I mentioned, and I want to just help our audience understand this concept because it is so gosh darn simple. Do we, now Berkshire Hathaway, Hathaway stock, one share of stock costs $458,495, one share of stock. Would you say we have a crisis in this country of Berkshire Hathaway stock because it's too expensive? No, that's what it's worth. There's no crisis and there's no shortage. We also do not have a shortage of Berkshire Hathaway stock. We have exactly the right amount. And if we have less, that would be exactly the right amount. So people talk about a shortage of housing when really they're not talking about quantity, they're only talking about price. But now, now we roll up our sleeves. You started with Berkeley, and you talked about um, using CEQA, the California um, air quality statute that allows unions and others to bring environmental lawsuits, which have the effect of delaying the construction of housing. That now, which increases the cost of housing, now we roll up our sleeves and we get down to business because now we're saying, okay, Bob, let's concede. We are not talking about quantity, we're talking about price. But Bob, you are assuming that price is dictated by the market, just like my reference to Berkshire Hathaway stock. But no, what we are really talking about this evening is price is not a function of supply and demand. Price is artificially high because of governmental policy. Therefore, I, I have described California's housing policy as rent control in reverse. In rent control, government keeps rents artificially low. In housing policy, the same government California keeps housing artificially high. It's rent, it's reverse rent control for housing. And so now we're going to talk about what does California do that makes the cost of housing artificially high? By, so it's not a function of supply and demand. If it was, housing would be cheaper. It's a function of 
misguided governmental policy, which has the effect of increasing the cost of housing, so that now the government, with its thumb on the scale, makes housing too expensive. So then, Bob, is now wrong, because no, expensive housing is not a function of supply and demand, it's a function, Craig, which we will now get into, of governmental policy. Just like rent control keeps rents low, governmental housing policy and land use keeps housing high. And added to that is, and we'll talk about this as well after the break, the manipulation by some of the existing laws that essentially form a gotcha. If I don't get my own way, and this can run the gambit of whether or not a, uh, a neighborhood wants a house built or an apartment building built or not. We've read stories about people that say don't want that bar- apartment building to go in next to me because it'll cast a shadow. To others that say we're okay if we put up the big four-story apartment building. We just want to make sure that we get to dictate who's going to construct it, and how much they're going to be paid. Bob Zadek with us tonight. We're talking about the housing situation here in California and ways in which, I was going to say well-intended, but not always so well-intended, but the ways in which bureaucrats and laws passed in Sacramento or Washington, D.C., for that matter, can complicate the decisions that really ought to be made by a local municipality, by local citizens, but instead they are hamstrung and others learn how to manipulate these laws for their own benefit, much to the detriment of the rest of us. Bob Zadek with us tonight, the host of the Bob Zadek Show, heard Sunday mornings, 8 o'clock on 860 AM, The Answer. Details about Bob, his guests, and upcoming shows on the web at bobzadek.com, B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. A brief time out back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. I mentioned before the break how that environmental impact reports or lack of same had helped to stymie the ability of constructing additional student housing near UC Berkeley. And you might think, Craig, didn't you mean to say infrastructure impact? I mean, after all, at the end of the day, isn't it about how many new housing units will local roads accommodate, electricity, water, sewer, et cetera, et cetera? No, 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 no. It's it's environmental impact. In fact, there is something called the California Environmental Quality Act that in the construction of multi-dwelling units, multi-family units, um, can really come in and put the kibosh on the ability to construct local housing. Much of this has to do with what they deem to be concerns over increased carbon emissions, which I always find quite ironic because whether you're moving from Section A to Section B of one part of the town to another, aren't the carbon emissions just the same? (laughs) But apparently they don't think so. What's happening is that Sacramento and Washington, D.C. are essentially calling the shots And we're still the ability to use these so-called Environmental Quality Act as a, well, let's call it what it is, a club in order to get their own way, be it NIMBYism, not in my backyard. That new building might cast a shadow. It will hamper the growth of my tomatoes and therefore will stand against it, up to and including even the ability of unions to essentially come in and manipulate 
in order to get their own way. Let's get more insights as we continue our discussion with syndicated talk show host, best-selling author Bob Zadek. And Bob, I know it's one thing to say let's do what we can to try and protect the environment, but at the end of the day, shouldn't decisions related to what goes up where and how tall or how small be left up to local municipalities, local citizenry, as opposed to a club being wielded all the way from Sacramento or worse still, Washington, D.C.? I must confess, I would. I was preparing for this evening's show. I was fearful that you would invite a conversation about zoning. Why was I fearful? Because it's one of the issues that I. It's only there are only a few, but this is going to be a confession, a public confession to your audience. It's one of the issues that. I can't figure out where I stand. And let me explain. On the one hand, I couldn't agree more. Local local zoning is something I support. People ought to be able to have a say in what it's like where they live. They have a right to say, I like living surrounded by single family houses. And I will buy a house in the neighborhood that only allows construction of single-family houses. I just like it. It's my aesthetic. And I know it makes the housing cost more, but I can afford it. So I see nothing wrong with that. Then you have, so that would favor local control. But then you have the state saying, hold it. We are suffering a loss of workers statewide because we can't house people where the jobs are. And because of localities, upscale, upper middle class or higher communities have zoning that says you have to build on an acre of land, which means we have a family of four consuming an entire acre of land where 30 families could live in different type housing. So we have the state saying, no, that's selfish. And we are going to remove local control and replace it with statewide control because local control harms other groups. And that I understand that point of view, although my bias is local control. On the other hand, when you have zoning that becomes de facto exclusionary by having it being expensive, which people might perceive, it reduces the number of various minorities and people who are of lower income they can't live in this really nice place and we like it that way so then it has a nasty feel to it so and in zoning i also like the idea when i own a plot of land on which i built a house I like personal freedom. I should be able to do whatever I want on my land so long as it doesn't harm somebody else with toxic chemicals or whatever. But I have no duty 
to maintain my land in a way that satisfies somebody else's aesthetic. So what if I allow weeds to grow on my front lawn and I never paint my house and it looks really shabby and there are broken windows and it's really unpleasant as we all can imagine for the neighbors who have visitors and they have to explain away my unkept house. Should the neighbors have a say in how I maintain my house? Well now, my own view crashes into my respect for private property. I can do what I want as long as I don't harm somebody else. I don't have to satisfy their aesthetic needs as long as I don't hurt them. And I can't decide how I feel. So I have mixed feelings about zoning. And I can't figure out how I feel. But the one thing for sure, Craig, and this was your point, is that zoning and land use legislation has the effect of reducing available housing. There's a benefit. People like it. It's pretty. People like to live there. But it, it takes land away from the marketplace. So I understand the other point of view, but I simply say my personal view, I'm a little bit uncomfortable, my personal view is I like local zoning, I like zoning, because I like the fact that I can find an area that is zoned in a way that satisfies me, and I know it's gonna stay that way. What I don't like about zoning is, it would be horrible if after I bought my house, there's a change in land use. So all of a sudden I learned that what I used to do on my property, it's taken away from me. That's pulled value out from under me after I bought it, and that offends me. So zoning is a really complicated issue, far more complicated than one might first imagine, but a really interesting Topic to discuss. Yeah, and, and I and I get your point, and I and I appreciate Bob very much the candor in in the sense that that it's a topic in which you're not completely settled on, and I and I think that there's aspects of this that that are a bit fluid in terms of well, what kind of zoning laws and who do they impact? Yes, I agree. I want to be able to maintain my own sense of independence and control over my land, what I do with it, what I build on it. At the same token, do I want to live in a neighborhood that has zoning laws that provide my next door neighbor from opening up a, uh, a Dow chemical plant and, and installing silos right next to me? Yes. I, I would like to be some th- there to be some restrictions on that. And there ought to be certain parts of town where that's allowed and where there, there it isn't allowed. But at least that's a decision that is initiated locally, controlled locally, decided upon locally, that I'm okay with. I think where it becomes complicated is when you have regulations related to the environment that are being dictated out of Sacramento or Washington, D.C., that take the one-size-fits-all approach that can effectively be weaponized in order for people to shut things down. So, for example, in the case of, as we mentioned earlier, UC Berkeley, but this could be anywhere. Neighbors might say, gee, you know, I like the fact that I can see all the trees on my block and I don't want a three-story apartment building to go up down the street from me because it will cast long shadows and my tomatoes may not grow as much. Well, you know, to, to use the environmental 
Equality Act as a weapon in order to prevent that housing from going up and effectively prevent another owner of a piece of land from doing what they wish to do with their property, I think becomes very problematic. Uh, More so the notion that oftentimes we find even the trades will get involved, will use the Environmental Quality Act is a means of making sure that their muscle gets exercised so that the building goes up under, you know, union construction, union wages, et cetera, et cetera. And then all of a sudden, once they get the union contract, all of the appeals or all of the uh, the arguments as to why the building shouldn't go up under the terms of the California Environmental Quality Act all suddenly disappear. There, I think, it becomes problematic because you're suddenly weaponizing the law for, let's face it, not not purposes of protecting the environment, but rather purposes of protecting your own personal agenda. Craig, um, what about, just to test what you just said, how would you feel? I'm asking a personal question, but don't get nervous. I'm not going to be prying. If... Uh, you lived in a, and I don't know where you lived, if you lived in a single family house in a neighborhood, would you, and I'm asking you a question of principle, would you support or oppose a local law that said you cannot rent out your house under Airbnb or other uh, such uh, devices to gain additional revenue. Now, that would mean that all, you might very well end up living on a block of nice leafy trees and wide streets, but a block where everybody who lives on your block is now renting, and the owner is some hedge fund in, in Detroit. They own the block. They bought all the houses, and they rent them out under an Airbnb system. So your block is full of strangers who rent for the weekend. Now, putting aside whether it's going to be noisy or noisy, how would you feel purely as an aesthetic? And you're the only guy who still lives on that block. You're the only guy who lives full-time in your single-family house. But all of a sudden, you have no neighbors. You have just people there overnight like a hotel room. Well, and I think at the end of the day, the reality is that that could happen tomorrow anyway. I mean, there's there's nothing to prevent any of my neighbors who uh, who own their properties and live there to decide tomorrow, you know, we're going to retire to XYZ community, but we're keeping the old house in town there. We're going to rent it out. It's going to become rental property. You could wind up with the entire neighborhood having nothing but no 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 owners and all renters. So there, there's there's nothing to prevent that. I mean, I, I, I would think in the terms to get to the specificity of, of Airbnb, if there were some regulations in terms of, well, the city has a ordinance that you cannot rent an Airbnb and have a party of more than 50 people there or things of that sort that would come under, you know, uh, parking control, noise ordinances, things of that sort, that I would be okay with. But in terms of restricting a neighborhood simply because I would prefer to live uh, surrounded by other owners, uh, you know what, I don't, I don't really feel that I would support that kind of restriction. But can you be, you would understand if other people said, you know, I'm old fashioned. I like having neighbors 
good old John next door who I play golf with and vacation with and have breakfast with on the weekends. And that's, I understand somebody who would prefer that. And should they, should their preference, if enough people want, be able to support legislation so that now a homeowner is forbidden from renting out their house. Many communities have such prohibitions for just those reasons, for aesthetic reasons. And that's a crash between how you get to use your own property and zoning. And zoning is always done to preserve a certain aesthetic for the people who live there. And, you know, we're talking about housing. California is famous for its aggressively preserving green spaces, parks, and they, and they preserve, they want to preserve a farm as a farm. I, they like the idea of living near a farm. It's pretty, it's bu bucolic, it's wonderful. Uh, but that means the farmer can't sell the land to a developer to build a housing development. Now, I understand people who like to live near green, I do too. But once again, the whole issue of zoning and land use and therefore housing costs involves a crash between two people who have a legitimate request. One likes having a lot of green around them and they pick their housing because it's near green. People like to live near a golf course because it's going to be green. They like to live near a state park because it's going to stay green. So zoning that preserves the green hurts the housing quantity but protects the green. Man, great, this is such a hard issue and your audience has to really try to figure out how they feel and it's very personal. But understand that these are the policies that result in a shortage, an artificial increase in the cost of housing because California goes very much towards the extreme of protecting land use and preserving green spaces and things of that nature. But this is an issue where both sides have a seat at the table. It is so hard, Greg, at least for me. No, I, I, I concur with you, Bob. It, it is a challenging one because you have to weigh not only your own interests and concerns, but also that of your neighbors understanding that they have equal rights as well to the use of their land and what might suit me may not suit my neighbor or you could move into a neighborhood that has certain doctrines and covenants in place that that protect the aesthetic and then one day new city government gets elected there's a changing face of the local voting population and now we change the zoning laws. We modify the doctrines and covenants that will allow for mixed use. I know people that say I would never want to have to live in a neighborhood where there's local retail taking place. And others that would say, well, that's the exact kind of neighborhood that I grew up in. And I love the fact that I can walk out of my condo or apartment and have a grocery store a couple of blocks down and a restaurant across the street and the laundromat two blocks away. People love that. 
Uh, it, it does come down to, and, and, and this is a good point to end our discussion on this afternoon, uh, it, it does come down to the fact that oftentimes when we wish to see regulations and ordinances passed in order to protect our own interests as they are, where they are at the time, that those very same zoning laws or regulations can be used against us later on down the road or against our neighbors almost immediately that, as Bob points out, all have a very fundamental impact on the cost of housing. And again, and wonderful lessons from Bob Zadek, it isn't so much that there's suddenly this massive shortage of housing. It's just that there is a bigger demand for housing in areas where there's little available at the prices that people are comfortable in paying. And what what's the real delineation between one or the other? Is there a lack of housing in uh, Woodside? No. You might define it that way if you're trying to buy a four-bedroom house for $500,000, and there's absolutely a shortage of $400,000 homes in Woodside. But if you're willing and capable of paying $10 million, well, you can have all the housing in Woodside you want all day long. It's just a matter of supply, demand, and what the prices in relationship to the demand. And the irony is we live in an area that, at least for the time being, is still very much in demand. You fascinated by topics like this and the give and take and the challenges to our way of thinking and viewing things? Well, Bob engages in these kinds of discussions with opinion shapers and newsmakers every Sunday on his program. It's called The Bob Zadek Show, aptly titled, and you can check him out online. Details about past guests, podcasts, Bob's books, as well as upcoming guests online at bobzadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K. And as always, a delight and an education to spend some time with Bob Zadek. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Just uh, to reiterate what we mentioned earlier, there had been a closure on the uh, Bay Bridge heading uh, eastbound. uh, That's just east of Treasure. I'm sorry, westbound, east of Treasure Island because of a tree that's fallen. We're getting reports all throughout the Bay Area with this wind event. So just be careful when you're out there driving and be mindful, particularly along the peninsula. There are many city streets that do not have power at signal lights. So treat them as a four-way stop sign and uh, be cautious out there. A wind event is going to apparently last in through the early evening, and uh, you might get home and find out you're dining by candlelight, so uh, so be safe. All right, let's turn the corner to another topic I mentioned at the start of the program tonight. We wanted to touch on Assembly Bill 223, once again here in California, proving that the California State Legislature doesn't have nearly enough to do. Instead, they want to through yet another misguided attempt, uh, address a non-problem. In this case, in the form of Assembly Bill 223 by Assemblymember Christopher Ward of San Diego, uh, wishes to allow minors to seal public records related to their birth sex identity, as if somehow... That could be changed. With more insights, Jonathan Keller joins us, president of the California Family Council. And, and, and Jonathan, it just it seems as if over the last uh, five, six, ten years, the California state legislature 
pushes this issue further and further and further. Now, a law that would essentially allow someone to determine what their sex is, not based on biology, but based on their feelings, and then ultimately be able to seal the record. I mean, I, what, what exactly are they trying to accomplish here? Well, hey, Craig, first off, great to be with you and all your listeners. Uh, I really appreciate you giving California Family Council an opportunity to share about this. Um, unfortunately, I wish that I could say that there was a benign explanation um, and I, I guess if you want to give these people the benefit of the doubt, you could say that they're concerned about troubled young people in troubled homes and they want to try to allow them to be protected from maybe parents who are misunderstanding or don't have their best interest at heart. But tragically, Craig, I think the simple answer is that they do not view parents as the rightful guardians or the rightful responsible party when it comes to children. I mean, this is essentially a direct assault on parental rights. And it's it's sadly in line with so much of what we've seen coming out of Sacramento over the last several years. The, the fact that you have legislators who believe children can make these life-altering decisions for themselves uh, not only should they be able to make them, not only should they be able to uh, make them over their parents' objections or over their parents' consent, they should be able to make them even over their parents' knowledge or information. Uh, essentially, you are moving along a line of almost starting to treat young people, minors, as emancipated, even while they are living in their parents' house, on their parents' insurance, eating their parents' food, being cared for in every other aspect. But Sacramento politicians think that they know better than the millions of moms and dads across the state. And sadly, I think that we're going to see more bills like this come out of Sacramento in the coming weeks and months. So, Jonathan, the average 13-year-old out there, they, they can't join the United States military. They, they can't vote. They can't legally drink. They can't even get a driver's license. They can't engage in any sort of a contract. So they can't sign a contract to, to buy a house, buy a car. They can't do any of that. But they could essentially change their sex or at least change how they identify and then have those records sealed. So if said child gets involved in, say, uh, uh, an unfortunate set of circumstances with the foster care system, whatever the case might be, that effectively they could hide their true identity, that a, that a 13-year-old could make a decision with such gravitas, and yet the more mundane things in life that I've just delineated a moment ago, by law they can't participate in, and any Anybody would say if you wanted to change the law for a 13-year-old to join the military, you're nuts. But you're not nuts to say that a 13-year-old could, could, based on their feelings, change how they identify and have their, have their legal, biological records sealed. And, you know, what, what seems to be missing for the equation, Jonathan, beyond a just complete utter disregard for parental rights, but it's also the notion that a 13-year-old or a teenager, for that matter, of any age, is, is capable of making those kinds of emotional decisions. I mean, most kids can't tell you what they want for dinner. That's absolutely correct. And, Craig, look, I, I want to point out the fact that there are a lot of children, especially in today's crazy society, 
that are struggling with gender dysphoria. And I, I think that as followers of Christ and, and just as fellow citizens, I think we need to have compassion and respect for those young people. I, I cannot imagine. I mean, Craig, I, I'm not exactly sure how, you are, how old you are, but I just turned 40 last year. I have a five-year-old. I have a two-year-old. I, I really cannot imagine what it is going to be like for my kids growing up in this insane, crazy world. And that's, that's part of the reason why, for example, my wife and I have chosen to homeschool, uh, our, at least our, our five-year-old. We're, we're just at the very beginning of that process with kindergarten. But I, I recognize that parents today have an extremely hard job. Kids have an extremely difficult time in the crazy media confusion world that we have with uh, Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and TikTok and everything else in between. But the idea to me that Sacramento thinks, in light of all the difficulties young people have today, the thing that they really need, the thing that is going to be best for them, is to further alienate them from the mothers and fathers that brought them into the world, further alienate them from their closest relationships, the, the people who love them the most of anybody in the world. I mean, Craig, look, I, I know there are a lot of very good teachers in our state. I know there are a lot of people who, who want the best, sincerely, for the kids that they are in charge of. But I'm sorry, respectfully, none of them love the children that are in their classrooms as much as the moms and dads of those children. And, and let yeah. me add, Jonathan, forgive me for the interruption, and none of them will have to deal with the responsibility of picking up the pieces once right. a child who is incapable emotionally of weighing the consequences of a, of a, of a life-altering, life-changing decision and then when they decide... I mean, listen, as a kid, I, I, Tuesday I wanted to be a fireman. Wednesday I wanted to be a police officer. By Thursday I was going to be a lawyer, right? They are not going to be the ones that are going to have to pick up the pieces and help a child who has been emotionally shattered because they made the wrong decision that was fully supported by this nameless, faithless thing called government. And then in the end, who's going to have to pay for the, the counseling to help that child? Who's going to have to pick up the pieces? It's going to be the parents. I mean, at the end of the day, Jonathan, if the argument behind this law is, well, we need to do it because kids are confused. Yeah, they're confused. And guess what? We, as the adults, are the ones that are creating the confusion. 100% correct, Craig. And I think this is, again, another example of the government and, respectfully, our friends on the progressive left side of the spectrum uh, having this utopian idea of how society should work. So they pass this type of law or they institute this type of cultural change. And then there are all these unintended side effects. There are these unintended consequences, this huge fallout, as you mentioned, for young people. And then what is the answer? It's not maybe we should reexamine how we got here. Maybe we should reexamine the ways that we have broken the familial relationship between parents and children. No, the answer is another government program. It's another attack on the family. And it is government, again, stepping into that place between mothers and fathers and their children. And tragically, Craig, I think this, this ends in disaster. If California continues along this route 
we're going to see parents lose more and more rights every year until the legislature wakes up and realizes they cannot replace moms and dads. Well, and moreover, again, going back to the core issue, and that is that when the fallout happens, and it will happen, maybe not today or tomorrow, but next month, next year, and that and that, that young, malleable child changes their mind yet once again, who's going to be there to pick up the cost from that? Can, 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 you, can you send the bill to the governor and say, my son or daughter made a very bad decision that you help facilitate by locking me out of the the process as the parent. And now that the damage has been done, are you going to pay for the surgery to have a reversal done? Are you going to pay for the years of counseling that will be necessary? You know, because at the end of the day, that's exactly where the consequences are going to be. And in a misguided attempt to think that we are empowering our children, uh, what we're really doing is we're giving our children the power to destroy their own lives. I mean, what's next? Legalize suicide? Let's just decide that, you know, when you decide it's too much to handle, why, why encourage people? people not to commit suicide. I mean, is, isn't the end disaster in terms of the human carnage about the same? Well, I would hope that nobody listening to this program would ever for a nanosecond suggest to someone that suicide is an answer or a good idea or a solution to any problem, because take it from me, it's not. And yet other ways that can be considered almost as destructive and as dangerous are being gladly promoted by the California state legislature. They can't figure out how to deal with the tax problem in our state or transportation, but apparently Assemblymember Christopher Ward thinks he knows all there is to know about raising your family. Wow. AB223, reach out to your member of the California State Legislature and say, bad idea, don't vote for this, because if you do, I'll be sure never to vote for you again. Details on the web at CaliforniaFamily.org. That's CaliforniaFamily.org. God help us. Jonathan Keller, president of the California Family Council, we appreciate the update. Painful though it may be, we appreciate the update. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.